Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. But how does his iconic prayer serve as a model in our own prayer life? Find out today as Pastor Barton continues our series on the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. There's a story about uh, three pastors on what we used to call an old-fashioned telephone conference call. If you don't know what that is... Don't worry about it. It's irrelevant. Moses did them. Your parents did them. I even did them. But uh, just imagine Zoom, but without the video, and it's only audio, and it's on your phone. But it's not a smartphone. It's a phone that, believe this or not, ready for this, it was connected to a wall with a cord. Uh, So they were on the, if you don't understand that, just imagine your best. They were on this telephone conference call. three pastors sitting there, and they're having a discussion on trying to encourage one another. What what do you find are the most powerful ways to pray? And, And one of the pastors said, well, I have found probably the most powerful for me is when I come to pray, I like to fold my hands, hold them kind of toward the heavens because it's symbolic of, of praying up towards God. Second pastor said, that might work for you, but for me, it's kneeling. Most powerful way to pray, you kneel down before the king of kings. And then finally, the third pastor says, no, 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 guys, not at all. You need to prostrate yourself. I mean, think about who you're coming for. That's the most powerful way to pray. Well, little did they know, on the, back, on the other end of this telephone conference call, there was a telephone repairman who was fixing the lines. Again, I told you this is an old story. And he could hear what was going on, but he was respecting confidentiality, so he wasn't interrupting. But at this point, he could not take it anymore and he burst into the conversation. He said, you guys don't know anything about the powerful ways to pray. I have found the most powerful prayers I've ever offered is when I'm hanging upside down from a telephone pole 40 feet above the ground. That's when you know how to pray with power. And what we were saying last week when we introduced this series was that that's exactly how we all learn how to pray. We learn to pray when, when trouble comes into our life. Something maybe huge happens, like somebody, well, somebody we love gets cancer. We're hanging upside down from a pal- telephone pole. Now we want to know how do we pray. I remember people calling me on the phone who've never really even asked me a lot of spiritual questions. And some tragedy happens in their life. Thinking of one individual in my mind right now just calls me up saying, how do I pray in this moment? Well, that's not the time to give any great theological answer. The answer is, how would you, how would you pray when you're hanging upside down from a telephone pole? Help is a good word. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with whatever comes into your heart, however you want to express yourself to God. So this is how we learn to begin to pray. There's some problem in our family. Exam time is coming if you're a student. You need a job. We, we must say again, this is good. This is right. Nothing wrong with it. We should always pray this way. But we also begin to learn that prayer has more to it than this. Prayer begins simply by opening your mouth and expressing your heart towards God, your Father, just like a child comes to a parent saying they need their help. But just like a child needs to learn that you don't only talk to your parents when you need help with something, you got to learn how to grow into a relationship. you got to learn how to ask them questions, how to have dialogue, what it means to be in relationship. So also we learn from Jesus that we are to mature in our prayer lives. There's always a place for the help prayers. In fact, that's probably one of our most common. 
But we also got to learn, it's not just prayers of requests, not just our needs that we come into prayer with. Jesus wants to teach us to mature even more in prayer. So we come into prayer, and then we wonder, okay, what am I supposed to say? How do I address God? And then there's millions of ideas that people give. There's books that are written, many different books. And prayer, as we said last week, can feel kind of like a going through an uncharted jungle. you got to kind of hack your way through. Okay, I'm going to try this. If I address God this way, you start hacking your way through this jungle of prayer. Then you kind of find yourself lost because your mind wanders off onto what happened with your, your, the game last night. And you're wondering about what you're going to do tonight. And all, these, you all of a sudden, you're kind of lost out in this jungle. And you don't even sure where you're going. And so for many people, they begin well. We know how to say help when we need help, but we're not quite sure how to pray, if we're to sit down and pray, and exactly what we're to say. It feels like an uncharted jungle. But the good news we said last week is that Jesus, when his disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray, he didn't say to them, hey guys, it's tough, I mean... Here's a machete, just you got to go figure it out. Figure out a path. Hopefully, eventually, you'll make it to the mountain of God, so to speak, and you figure it out. And that's not what Jesus did. Jesus blazed a trail for them. He cleared the way, and he said, here is the path. Here is how you pray. Follow on this path. And then for the last 2,000 years, Christians have walked this path over and over and over. The path is what we call the Lord's Prayer. The disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. Jesus said, this then is how you should pray. I want you to pray like this. These are the words. Here's the themes. Here's the topics. That is such good news for us. So we're following Jesus. We're following those who've gone before us. We're asking then, what does the Lord's Prayer teach us about how to pray? And last week we introduced the prayer. And today... We begin with the very first line of the prayer. So I thought nothing more fitting on Mother's Day than to preach on our Father in heaven. Right? <laughs> okay, so people are like, why are, you, why are you speaking on that on Mother's Day? Here's the deep and profound answer. I only have three Sundays left. I didn't want to miss preaching on some of these, so I didn't want to change the schedule. That's how deep and profound it is, okay? But then I started thinking about it, and I'm like, but you know what? Every mother out there needs to the power and the grace that comes from our loving Heavenly Father. Every mother out there needs to know of the one in the heavens who has all power in heaven and on earth is sovereign because those kids cannot always be easy. So learning to pray to our Father in heaven could be one of the greatest gifts that a mother could have on Mother's Day. That's my good theological answer. Did it win you or do you still think it's weird? All right, you decide. I don't know. I'm going to do it anyways. Okay, so here's how I want to approach this morning. Because the first line, our Father in heaven, has two parts to it, our Father in heaven, we're going to have this as a two-part message. See, I'm, see it's just how creative I am this week? It's incredible. So the first question I want to ask is this. What is Jesus teaching us about prayer when he tells us to pray to God as our Father. So let's focus on the first half, our Father. And here's a basic answer for you, and we'll elaborate on it. God invites his children to come directly to him, relating to him as a loving Father. This is what we're learning right away in prayer, that we are to approach God. We are invited into prayer, not just to some great and exalted God, but to relate to God as our loving Father. Jesus right away is saying, 
you can have direct access to God. We don't have to do anything. This is huge. We do not have to do anything like so many other world religions. You don't have to put up prayer flags. You don't have to ring some bells. You don't have to burn some incense. You don't have to go on a trek or a pilgrimage. You don't have to do anything. As soon as you want to speak in prayer, Jesus says you can come directly to God. You don't have to go through some human priest who's got to do a bunch of rituals on your behalf because you're removed from God and the priest stands between you and God. You don't have to pray through Mary, through the saints, through anyone else. You can come directly to speak to the creator of heaven and earth. And even more astounding than this, we don't have to come to him just as groveling, puny little creatures on this little planet before this great and powerful and almighty God. We don't have to come to him just kind of, please let us come into your presence. We are so powerful, but we, we dare to come. That's not how he says. He says, come to him in prayer, speaking to him right away as our father. As a child approaches a father. Of course, we do relate to God as creator to creature, as king to subject, as master to servant. He is all those things to us. But seemingly above them all and around them all is this greater truth that through Jesus Christ, God is our Father, and we can approach him directly as our Father in heaven, like children approach their dad. This was incredible to the people of Jesus' day. To the Jews of Jesus' day, they did not really use this language of our Father. It was used once in a while, but not too much. They preferred titles like Sovereign Lord, King of the Universe, Holy One, Almighty, Lord of Hosts. In the Old Testament, God is referred to as Father, but only 14 times. And usually it's more general, like he's the Father of all creation, or he is uh, like a Father. But as scholar Dale Bruner points out, for Jesus... God is not simply like a father behind who stands a more awesome God. God is father. Or as another scholar named Craig Blomberg adds to this, use of this intimate term for God was virtually unparalleled in the first, in first century Judaism. Rarely used. And yet, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these stories of Jesus, you will see that Jesus is always referring to God as my Father. He is always doing this. He prays to God many, many times. In fact, over 70 times, Jesus refers to God as my Father or prays to him as Father. So what we're getting then is this picture of Jesus' prayer life with God, the creator of heaven and earth, relating to him as Father. Perhaps one of the greatest moments we see this in Jesus' life is that night before he is crucified. He's in the garden. He's alone. The garden we call Gethsemane. He's filled with anguish. He is considering the cup he is about to drink, the cup which is the symbol for what he's about to go through on the cross where he will drink the cup in an Old Testament language, that is, to drink the cup of God's judgment and wrath. He's about to go to the cross where he will face the wrath and judgment that is due to us for our sins, but he's going to take it on our behalf. He's about to experience what it means to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he is so so stressed by this that he's beginning to even, blood is coming into his sweat. He's just stressing so much about this and he is kneeling before his God, his maker, 
as he's coming into this world as the incarnate son of God, and he says these words. He kneels before him, and Mark records, he fell to the ground and cried out, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. In his hour of greatest need, he calls out in prayer to God as his Father. Now, You've been following this uh, Canadian, this Canadian woman. What's her name? Matea Roach. Uh, just won like 23 straight episodes of Jeopardy. We get to play a little Bible Jeopardy right now. So this one's just a little tricky. So I'm going to give it to you for 400. Okay, it's a little higher. The next one's only 200. So that's, you got to get this one. What language is the word Abba from? No, it's not the dancing queen. That's not the language. That's a whole different thing. Totally different. What language is Abba? Do you know it? It's for 400. Okay, I heard a few people. You got the 400. Good, good. It's Aramaic. Why is that important? Well, Abba is Aramaic. That is the native tongue Jesus would have spoken. But here is Bible Jeopardy now just for 200. This one's a little easier, especially if you've been around church for a while. What is 99.8 or 9% of the New Testament written in? What language? The New Testament. I heard a few Hebrews in there. You guys, sorry. That's the Old Testament. Sorry to just embarrass you. Greek, yeah, it's written in Greek. So did you get 600 today or how much did you get? All right, we'll pay it out later on. 99.9% of the New Testament is written in Greek. So now track this. Mark is writing his gospel. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is totally stressed out. He is really struggling with about what he's about to do to go to the cross. He falls to the ground, and Mark records that he calls out to God, yes, in Greek as father. He writes pater, father, writes it in Greek. But before that, he writes, he said, Abba, father. Here's the question. Why did Mark not translate? Well, he did translate it. He put it in Greek. Why include the Aramaic? What's the point? Read the rest of the gospel, Mark. You don't read Aramaic words. And it's not like when you read the New Testament, you find Aramaic words all throughout it. It's Greek, 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 Greek. But then there's another instance, for instance, when the Apostle Paul in Romans 8.14 writes, you receive the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, we cry out in prayer, Abba, Father. Paul does the exact same thing as Mark does. Why? What's going on here? Greek all the way through, and all of a sudden, an Aramaic word gets thrown in, and then translated into Greek, Father, Abba, Father. Why are the New Testament writers including this Aramaic word? Here's my best guess. Could it be that the disciples were so impacted by hearing Jesus pray to the creator of heaven and earth using this intimate relational term of Abba that that word had almost become too sacred to them? That whenever they thought of prayer, they thought of Jesus praying to God in this this intimate terminology that they just wanted to retain it? There's no need to retain it. They know how to say it in Greek. There's no, there's no practical reason you have to do that. So it's almost as if every time they went to pray, they remembered how Jesus prayed to God so intimately, so tenderly, so directly, and the echoes of Jesus' prayer to Abba came down to them, and it's like they wanted to retain it because it had become so sacred to them. Now, the shocking thing about this prayer, that the Lord's Prayer that Jesus is teaching us, is Jesus saying this. He's saying to his disciples, you know the kind of relationship I have 
with God my Father? Because I have come. My Father is now your Father. You, because of what I am here to do, can now relate, unlike anyone else in history, and like no other religion would ever claim to say, you can now relate to the almighty creator of heaven and earth in the same way that I do, as Father, as our loving heavenly Father. So what is this phrase, our Father, meant to teach us? It's meant to teach us that soon as we want to come to address God, we are welcomed into his presence through Jesus Christ, that we can address him with the language of our Father because he cares. We can come so directly into his presence. We can speak to him on this intimate relational terms because Jesus did all of this for us. Now I want to quickly add two comments to this. Comment number one, and I think we need to be really clear on this. Only God's children get to call him father. Only God's children. Just like other kids don't call me dad, call me father. It's my kids call me father, dad. Same thing. Only God's children. Well, then the the question becomes, aren't all people God's children? And the Bible's answer to that is kind of a small yes, but really a gigantic no. And, and what I mean by that is, if you read the Bible, God is the father of all people in the sense that he created everyone. That's true. But the rest of the New Testament basically goes on to say that, no, people are by nature not the children of God. They're by nature not part of the family of God. The Bible says that we are rebellious. We are like sheep who've gone astray. We are under wrath because of our sins. We have turned aside from our Father in heaven. We are slaves to sin. It's all kinds of language like this. By nature, we're not part of the family, and we need to become part of the family. And then the great story of the Bible is that God has found a way for those who are lost, for those who are outside, to be brought in, to be adopted into his family. Just as there was a time once when my son Joshua was not a part of my family, and then my wife and I flew to China, and we adopted him, and now he has full rights, and he is our son. In the same way, we need to be adopted into God's family. And how do we come into his family? Here's the language of John 1.12. To all who received him, that is Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Notice, not by nature children must become children. How do we become children? We must receive him. Who is him? Jesus. To those who receive Jesus, to those who believe in his name, who say, Jesus, forgive my sins. Make me right with God. The promise right there, incredible promise. You have the right. You are welcomed. Welcome to the family. You get God as your father. So that's the first thing I think we need to say is the only way we can approach God as father is if we have his son because Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one can come to the father except through me. Where is Jesus in the Lord's prayer? First word. As soon as you use the word father, you should immediately be going, our father, oh, and I can only address you as father because of what Christ has done. Because of his death on the cross for me, I approach you as father, confident of your love and care for me. Not because I'm great or because I've done anything, but because Jesus went to Calvary and there bore my sins for me. So the question to you, and I've only got a few weeks left to do this, <clears throat> to press you again, do you have the son? Have you believed on Jesus Christ for salvation. I've spoken it for seven years. Maybe you haven't been here seven years. But I press you again, again, appealing to you. Say, why not? 
Jesus, the Son of God, has his hands open saying, Come to me. I'll forgive your sins. I'll give you an eternity of joy. And I will bring you into the family. Why would you turn down such an offer? Do that today. Do you have the Son? That's comment number one. Comment number two is this. Some people have really bad earthly fathers. So this whole language of fatherhood is very difficult for them. I, this became really brought home to me almost on my very first night uh, when I went to uh, college. And my roommate, uh, we're lying in our bunk beds in our tiny little room, um, and he starts telling me his life story. And, and, and basically his life story is his father beat him so many times that he was removed from the home and went through the foster care system and started telling me stories. And maybe the worst one he said was one time his dad lined up all the boys, beat them so hard across their backsides, they all ended up in the hospital. Had to lay on their stomachs for a bunch of days. This is the story. This is the way he grew up. Boy, you can understand why a guy like that's going to have a hard time Relating and underhand, this idea of fatherhood needs to be redeemed. By the way, he's a strong believer this day. If that's your experience or something like that, then listen. This prayer that Jesus gives you is a gift. It's one of the most healing gifts you could ever receive. How so? Listen to Dale Bruner again. The remedy for a bad father is not the removal of any father figure at all, as if God's not the father. It's the gift, the gift of a finally good father. And the Lord's Prayer gives that gift. Jesus gives you the gift of the father that some of you never had, that you always wanted, that you've not had in this world. And if you've not had it, Jesus is giving you the gift saying, here, God Almighty is the father you never had and the father you've always wanted. And he's a good father, a tender father, and looks out for his children. So those are the two comments. So now to recap. How should we address God when we come to him in prayer? Jesus says we need to use the words, our father. So now the question comes up, can you address God in any other ways? Well, of course you can. Of course you can call him by other terms. I mean, you could go right through the names of all the Old Testament. God gives all kinds of names for himself, like Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. So if you need a job or something, you can say, uh, God, I'm coming to you as Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. You can pray to him that way, of course. You can pray to him as the great and awesome God, the great and the holy one of Israel. No problems at all. But here's the suggestion I think Jesus is saying is, Make sure your, the, your prayers are dominated by this new language that he's giving you. Because always just praying to the Holy One, listen, there's something a little missing if you're only ever praying to the Holy One or the great and awesome God. What's missing? You haven't entered the New Testament. Because the Jews prayed like that all the time. But it's, that, that doesn't require Jesus. Now, I know, of course, in your mind, you're going to say, I'm not saying this is wrong to do. What I'm saying is, make sure that our Father is coming in there because that's how you enter into the gospel. That's how you enter into what God has done for you in Christ. Because listen, the, the Old Testament, the stress of the Old Testament is on, you cannot draw near to God. 
That's the whole stress. God's presence is in the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies. No one gets to go into his presence, period. There's a veil. You don't go past the veil except the high priest and only once a year. Then there's a, you move out and then there's courts and then there's more stuff out here and you can camp outside, but you need atonement for your sins. The constant stress is on how holy God is and you cannot, you may not come near into his presence because you'll be consumed because you and I are sinners. And that is the stress of the Old Testament. Testament. But the stress of the New Testament is God has made a way. He's made a way. And that way is his son, Jesus Christ, who on the cross, when he dies for our sins, his body is like the veil and his veil is torn. God tears the veil and opens the way into the Holy of Holies through the blood of Jesus so that anyone who wants to now come into the very presence of God can do it. But listen, there's only one way you can do it. If you've had the blood sprinkled on you, just like the Old Testament priest did with the animals, the blood of Jesus has cleansed you and made you pure so you can walk in. Not because you've done anything, but because Jesus has done it all for you. His blood has cleansed you. And if you're in that situation, you're made his child, and now the way is open. And you can come boldly into the throne room of God. That's the difference in the Old Testament and New when it comes to prayer. And that is why Jesus says, begin your prayers by calling God Father. Because it emphasizes all of that. So you can call him other things. Of course you can. But that's the main way Jesus says to do it. Listen to G.I. Packer. He puts this so well. New Testament believers deal with God as their father. Father is the name by which they call him. Christians are his children, his sons and daughters and his heirs. And the stress of the New Testament is not on the difficulty and danger of drawing near to the holy God, but on the boldness and confidence with which believers may approach him. To those who are Christ's, the holy God is a loving father. They belong to his family. They may approach him without any fear and always be sure of his fatherly concern and care. This, says J.I. Packer, one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century, is the heart of the New Testament message. So that is where our minds and, and our thoughts and our words are to go as we begin in prayer. They begin with our Father, we approach him as children boldly approach a good Father who loves them. Now, the second half of the phrase, because notice that he does not just say, pray to just our Father. No, we are to address God as our Father in heaven. So here's the second question I want to ask this morning. What is Jesus teaching us about prayer when he tells us to pray to God as our Father in heaven. Why did he tag on that extra little part? And here's a basic answer for you. I think there's a little more to it, but we're going to start with this this morning. In heaven teaches us to approach our Father with reverence and awe so that we'll trust who this great God is. So literally, when if you read literally the Lord's Prayer, translate it, it's our Father, the one in the heavens. Our Father, the one in the heavens. Now, don't take this to mean that what we're referring to is how God is somewhere way up there in the heavens. We're not, this is not a, a reminder to ourselves of God's geographic location. That's not what we're trying to get when we pray, our Father, the one in the heavens. No, Jesus is trying to teach something us, and we're to learn something as we pray the words, the one in the heavens. And what is that? Listen to the reformer John Calvin. Here's what he says. This form of expression reminds us that he holds the whole universe in his grasp. 
this, this expression of the one in the heavens. He rules it by his power. That he is of infinite majesty, incomprehensible essence, boundless power, and eternal duration. It's his, his greatness, his majesty, his, his power. So he is our father, and he is the one in the heavens. Now, as I mentioned, the Jews in Jesus' day uh, were very inclined to this kind of language, the sovereign one, the Lord of hosts, the one in the heavens. They needed to hear this good news that now through Jesus Christ we can boldly come into the presence of that great God. We, need to, we can come boldly as a father. This is scandalous. Hey, just look at any other. Go, go talk to a Muslim about this. You do not approach Allah like a father. You do not do that. You treat him as a master and you are a servant. You do not get that level of intimacy in Islam. You do not get Buddhism. doesn't even have a personal God. There is no such thing as this personal intimacy relational. Jesus just opens, blows the doors off of this and says, you can approach the creator of the universe with such intimacy and awe as our father. So their generation really need to hear that. I'm going to suggest we all need to hear that all the time. I think our generation also needs to hear this second half of the phrase, that he is the one in the heavens. Because in our day, across, dare I say it, churches and amongst Christians as well, God can sometimes become so dumbed down as if he's just a buddy and a pal. There's not a respect or a reverence or an awe that goes on there. It's kind of just fluffy stuff. It's as if, I don't know. It's a watered-down God. It's God light. <laughs> Something like that, right? But Jesus is saying to us, no, I want you to pray to our Father, the one in the heavens. And sometimes I wonder if the world does not notice, or doesn't take greater notice of the God we worship because sometimes the God that is presented is just kind of small and kind of pathetic. It's just dumbed down again. There's a man named Charles Misner. He's a specialist in general relativity. And he makes this interesting comments on why he thinks this is why Albert Einstein didn't really get too interested in organized religion. Listen to this quote. You can decide what to do with it. He writes, The design of the universe is very magnificent and shouldn't be taken for granted. In fact, I believe that is why Einstein had so little use for organized religion, although he strikes me as a basically religious man. He must have looked at what the preachers said about God and felt that they were blaspheming. He had seen much more majesty than they had ever imagined, and they were just not talking about the real thing. My guess is that he simply felt that the religions he'd come across did not have the proper respect for the author of the universe. Don't know if that's true or not, but here's what I do know. What the church needs today, most certainly, is a deeper understanding of God as our Father and what that means through Jesus Christ. But what the church also needs today is a fresh vision of the exalted God who is the sovereign one, the one who sits in the heavens and makes the earth his footstool, the one who in the book of Job laid the foundations of the earth and said to the waves of the sea, here is the, the line in the sand, here is literally the sand, here is where your proud waves halt. We need a, a fresh vision of the God of Daniel chapter 4 where it says his dominion is an eternal dominion, his kingdom endures from generation to generation, that all the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing in comparison to his power, he does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and with the peoples of the earth. We need a fresh vision of he who is the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. 
He is God Almighty, the creator of the universe. And we need to approach him as our father boldly. But what's so great for us is that he is not just our father, as in our own earthly fathers are, are kind of weak compared to him, obviously. He is the one in the heavens. He's the creator of all. And so when we come in prayer, we come with reverence and respect. And then, oh, what trust and strength that brings into our hearts. That our father is not just our father. He is the one in the heavens. That will change your prayer life. Do you see how it's important? You've got to have both of these things. You, if you go on one side or the other, you fall into all kinds of problems. Jesus is making sure that when we begin in prayer, we're approaching God and addressing God with two things that we need. We need to hear, you are welcome. You are loved. Come into my presence. You get that in our Father. And you need to remember whose presence you're coming into. This is no buddy or pal. This is someone worthy of respect and worship and adoration and the one who can do the things that you're asking, who will fill you with strength, who can alleviate your anxiety because he is the one in the heavens. So this is why it's so wonderful when you begin to pray, to pause and say, okay, how did Jesus teach me to pray? He taught me the first words I need to say are, is our Father, the one in the heavens. Practice that this week. Meditate on both sides of that phrase because you need them both for your heart. We find in Christ then this supreme example, drawing near, calling upon the one who has all power and giving the adoration to him whom it is due. I want to show you a picture that I think kind of just captures this dual side of things. It's an older picture. Those of you who are older, you're going to recognize it. Those of you who are younger, you might not have even seen it before. So here's the picture. It is a picture of the President of the United States, John F. Kennedy, sitting in the Oval Office, sitting at his desk, and there's a little boy at his feet, under the desk. Quite a picture. Just looking at it, realize, first of all, who this man is. The President of the United States. At this time, just think about this for a moment, literally the most powerful man in the history of the world. No one else even comes close. Why do I say that? Because this is the first time in the history of the world where one man, by one push of a button, could obliterate all of his enemies with an atom bomb or many atom bombs. Genghis Khan never had that. Alexander the Great never had that. Napoleon never had that. No one in the history of the world commanded more power than this man in his era. The most powerful man in the history of the world, no one gets to walk into his presence You don't just get to walk into the Oval Office, but there's a boy playing at his feet underneath the president's desk. What child even gets to go into the Oval Office? And I'm sure if a child does get to go into the Oval Office, it's with his mother at his side, and she's saying, sit up straight, don't touch that. You are going to be, there's going to be rules, and you are going to follow those rules, And no child goes and plays at the feet of the President of the United States. No child plays under the desk of the President of the United States. Ah, but one child. You know who the child is. It's his own son, John F. Kennedy Jr. Only, I'm going to guess, only the President's son or daughter gets to do that. Pretty, so it strikes both, right? Here is this powerful figure who could literally bring destruction on levels that have never been imagined in history. 
And yet a boy is playing at his feet, and there's no problems. Security's not coming in to grab the kid and throw him out. He's welcome to do that. Just a little picture of the privilege that we have in prayer. In prayer, we can come with boldness into the most powerful presence of the one who's ever existed or will exist, the one who is eternal, the almighty God. What a privilege. Think of it another way in old days of the kings. I mean, no one would dare to wake a king up at 2 o'clock in the morning unless it's an absolute emergency. Even then, should we do it? Shouldn't we do it? And yet, the king's daughter could walk right into the king's bedroom at 2 o'clock in the morning Say, Dad, I need a glass of water. And the king will get up probably or call his servants or something and do it. Only the king's son could burst open the door to the king's bedchamber at 2 o'clock in the morning and say, Dad, I had a nightmare and I'm really scared right now. Can I come and climb up into bed with you? No one else gets to do something like that. Only the children of the king have that kind of access. And what Jesus is teaching us in this prayer right away is this is the kind of access you have to the creator of heaven and earth. That when you pray, you don't, when you mature in prayer, you don't just come rushing in with, here's all my needs, God, here's my laundry list of needs. He wants to hear them. But as I said to you last week, it's astounding to me who when I, when I follow Jesus' path in prayer and I begin with our Father, the one in the heavens, and then I pause Think through all the verses like, okay, I come to you through Christ. That's how you're my father. Think of my status now, child of God. He's the one in the heavens who created all things and all this theory of relativity, which I have no idea what it all means and all this stuff. And I'm meditating on that just for even just say a few minutes. It is astounding to me how many of my requests and how much of my anxiety is relieved before I ever even bring it up in prayer. Because that's what I think he intends to do. He intends for us to come in prayer into the presence of our Father in heaven. And so much of our needs are met simply by the first phrase of prayer. So this week, my encouragement for you is to maybe begin every day as you're beginning to pray. If you're going to spend a little extra time in prayer this week, do that. Spend five minutes even just thinking through and praying through whatever comes to your mind about this phrase, our Father the one in the heavens. Maybe take half the time on our Father, think all that through, praise him, worship him for whatever that means in your mind as you think it all through, and then the one in the heavens, yep, I need a sovereign God, and I give you the respect that you deserve. I give you your worthy of all worship. I kneel before you because you're so worthy of worship. Spend some time this week meditating for five minutes on our Father in heaven, and just see how many of your prayers are already answered before you even come to them. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, it is with great joy that we come into your presence. Thank you for sending your Son into this world to make that way, to make it possible for us to boldly come into the presence of you, the holy God, the one whom we could never enter into the presence of without being cleansed through the blood of Christ. Jesus, thank you for giving your life on the cross for us. What a gift! to be brought into the family of God. What a gift to be able to speak to the creator of the universe on such personal terms. And Father, we worship you as the one in the heavens, the sovereign one, the all-powerful one. And we say, worthy are you 
to receive all honor and glory and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. So we give you worship and praise, trusting you will provide for whatever needs are on our heart right now, knowing you already know our needs because you are our Father. And so we give you praise and it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray it. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe wherever you get your podcast. To experience other talks, videos, and gatherings, visit us at centralbaptistchurch.ca. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Podcast.